Hello, it's Craig from the future here again. Once again, I'm breaking my own time travel rules to inform you that this podcast was recorded after some Batwoman news came out, but before further updates appeared. So the section where we speculate on what might happen next is largely irrelevant, however fun it might be. Still listen to it because we're in fact brilliant at talking about the information we had at the time. We discuss some other out-of-date news in the Supergirl podcast, and hopefully the most in-date news on the Legends podcast. Now that I've informed you, I'd better return back to my own time and hope no more Batwoman news has come out. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Sarah Aviva, and you may have seen me on episodes and TV shows such as Lucifer, iZombie, Supernatural, Unreal, Ice, Aftermath, dot, dot, dot. You can see it all on IMDb. And you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. And welcome to another Bat-tastic Neil Before Pod, the podcast that keeps forgetting to change the light bulb on the Bat signal and also forgets to pay the bill on the Bat phone. I'm your host Craig and I'm here to lead a discussion about Batwoman Season 1, which recently ended. So we're setting atomic batteries to power and turbines to speed to discuss the ins and outs of the Arrowverse's newest recruits. So I turned on the Bat signal and the only person who answered was Andrew. I'll take it. Hi Andrew. Well, it's nice to at least be the tech support. Yeah, someone has to answer the Bat signal. There's no bat phone. Although there is a bat phone. Sort of. Yeah, right. but if it's not as camp and cheesy as, as the bat phone we all want, then why bother? Yeah, if it isn't the police commissioner saying, there's been a bank robbery in the city, quick, <laughs> phone Batman. <laughs> because that's the only thing we know how to do. We don't actually do our jobs. We just stand around and then phone Batman and then he does it. It's a good arrangement. It's quite slow in terms of mopping up crime, but it's a good arrangement. It means you don't have to actually do anything, which is always good. Works for me. Yeah. I enjoy not having to do anything. So anyway, before we get to season one of Batwoman, possibly the only season of Batwoman, which we'll get to eventually, <laughs> we should kneel before and rise against stuff. So what would you like to kneel before? Okay, I am kneeling for the news of that there is going to be a TV series version of the Percy Jackson and the Olympians books. So uh, this is our, our uh, series of YA novels about a teenage boy who discovers that he is the demigod son of Poseidon and then is inducted to a world of Greek myth existing in modern-day America and has various adventures in that. Uh, it has been done previously. In, I think, the mid-2000s, there was Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, and also Percy Jackson Sea of Monsters, which were kind of straight adaptations of the first two novels. Although with the very large number of liberties taken with source material, which was part of why they weren't so popular and weren't continued with the subsequent books. So uh, I think that when adapting novels, having it done as a TV show version can often turn out for the best because there's so much more 
time and space to work to work with so you aren't cramming down story and condensing subplots and kind of combining characters to save space but keep in as much as possible and it will also hopefully have the characters as the same age that they are in, in the books because it is in, in novels that they'll start off when they're 12 whereas in the films i think they're meant to be like 16 or something like that. I haven't read all of them yet. I'm currently going through some audiobooks of the ones that I haven't got around to yet. And one of the more amusing things about it is hearing the American narrator attempting to pronounce words in Greek and just imagining Kat absolutely cringing at the thought <laughs> of it. But I think, yeah, but as I said, having it as a TV series, I think will work much better, hopefully be more faithful to the books and just overall give a better viewing experience than the films managed. Cool. I've heard about this news. I haven't seen any of the films because I thought they looked pretty dire back in the day, so I just didn't bother. By all accounts, I haven't missed much. So Yeah, pretty much. Maybe the TV series will be good. They did it with Shadowhunters, and there was sort of mild success there after yep. failing to make a film that was any good, apparently, which I didn't see either. I've not seen either of those things, so I have no idea if either of them are any good, but I yep. suspect that... Mortal Instruments wasn't very good. Yeah, film's pretty mediocre. The TV series, better. I probably would have enjoyed it more if I were maybe 15 or 20 years younger. Yeah, I did watch the first episode, or rather I watched some of the first episode, but I think in the first 15 minutes, it doubled down on all of the CW tropes that I hate. Yeah. And I was just like, nah, nah. <laughs> I can't put up with this for much longer. As much as I like Catherine McNamara, or... I've liked her and things I've seen her in since. It wasn't for me. I'm also on the subject of book versions, also doing it with his dark materials. Yeah, I've, not, I've still not seen that. You know, I, I kept meaning to sit and watch the season, but I've just not done it yet. I wasn't that taken with the books, to be honest, though I did, I did actually quite enjoy the series. And I'm looking forward to more of it. Well, I read the books when I was at high school, and I think they're supposed to be read by people that are at high school. Well, maybe if I'd read it later on, I might not have been so enamoured, but yeah, I haven't seen the series yet. I did watch the film. Ian McKellen as a fighting polar bear is not without merit, <laughs> the rest of it was kind of mediocre. Let's take a book series that's kind of all about religion and remove all the religion from the story, because that's a good idea. Oh, God, yeah, I mean, on one hand, yes, I understand why, but on the other hand, well, if you're going to do that, then why bother? Yeah, if you're going to do that, then what's your story about? Nothing is the answer. <laughs> it's not about anything. So yeah, there we go. A few young adult things to maybe check out or not check out. Let's see what they can do with Percy Jackson later on. One of the Str Stranger Things kids is about to be in it. They're in everything that you need young actors for now. Yeah, more than likely. That's yeah. Although they'll be like 20 by the time it comes out or something. So it's probably not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Holland, put him in it. He always looks 12. Yeah, because I swear he's not actually aged in the last five years. There's a painting of him that's getting older. <laughs> that's what's happening. So, yeah. My Neil Before is a trailer for a Netflix film called The Old Guard, starring Charlize Theron. It's based on a hit graphic novel that I've not read. It's these kind of soldiers that don't age and they kind of participate in wars throughout human history and now they're in an age where they can't hide and it's all very dramatic. I mean, I don't think it looks that good. I think it looked mildly interesting, which is maybe the best I can hope for in this lockdown climate. It's one of those things where Charlie's Theron seems to be playing this kind of stereotypical tough girl or tough woman where in every scene 
or certainly in every scene in this trailer, she delivers her line with the exact same tone that indicates, I don't use my emotions, so therefore I'm a badass. It sounds like I really hate this, actually. But, <laughs> and no, I thought it looked kind of interesting. I quite like the idea of these immortal soldiers having to fight in different wars and the morality of that. If they play with the morality of that, I'll be quite happy because it's the, yeah, whose side are we on? Who deserves to win these things? Why are we on this person's side? There's all these questions that we could answer or could ask and probably won't is my no. feeling, but it's mildly interesting based on what I've seen on that one trailer. And you know what? I probably won't even watch it because a film comes out on Netflix and I'm like, I can watch that anytime, which means I don't watch it <laughs> at all. Well, I think it's a perfectly reasonable reaction to think about something favourably while simultaneously recognising it for the utter trash that it doubtless is. <laughs> Yeah, which I think you're right in thinking that's probably what this film is going to be. Because the kind of film that features Charlie Theron as an immortal ass-kicking badass kind of isn't the film that she is going to be delving deep into the morality of war and justification of violence throughout history. Yeah. Have you read the graphic novel? I have not. I'm going to go around to that one. No, I have added it to the list of things to hopefully one day get around to. So if people are coming to this podcast to get some deeper insight into what this film could or should be about, they're not going to get it here. I'm sorry, I haven't experienced absolutely everything. <laughs> I do need to sleep sometime, as much as I hate the necessity of it. Yeah. Because I'd rather be reading and watching things. Yeah, the Wikipedia article is in the show notes. Go knock yourself out uh, if you really want to know more. I'll read that Wikipedia article as well because it'll be a lot quicker than actually reading the graphic novel. Top-level nerdery you get here where we just sit and read Wikipedia verbatim and pretend that we know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's worked for us for, what, 150 episodes, so we're, <laughs> we're doing okay. Well, I take offence to that. I assure you that absolutely every piece of information I have imparted is from first-hand experience and is in no way frantically cribbed from various corners of the internet in the vague hope of making myself sound more cultured than I actually am. <laughs> it's from the actual wiki of that particular fandom, isn't it? That's what it is. All your Star Wars knowledge is actually from Wikipedia, not Wikipedia. That gives you that leg up. Busted. That's behind the curtain viewing here. You don't get that anywhere else. Okay, rise against. What do you want to rise against? Okay, I am rising against Scoob. This is a new Scooby-Doo movie. It's a CG animated thing, and originally intended as an origin story of how the whole Mystery Inc. gang came together, but it was more interested in being an origin for a Hanna-Barbera shared universe. So instead of just being a Scooby-Doo movie by itself, it was instead shoehorning in as many references to other Hanna-Barbera cartoons as it could in the cynical attempt to create possibilities for other movies and create a shared universe because that's what Marvel did and they made lots of money about that so let's do this as well. I just really hate that kind of thing because it's just making it obvious that you're not making something because you care about it. You're just focused on how much money you can potentially make from it. Which I know in that is fundamentally the point of making films for these companies, but they just don't need to be so contemptibly obvious about it. And it frustrates me and it ended up taking away pretty much everything about what people love about Scooby in the first place. It was just such a distraction. I haven't seen Scoob yet. Uh, it was actually interesting seeing it. And I did hear about the whole Hanna-Barbera 
characters being thrown in, which actually made me a little bit more interested because these kinds of things seem to have died a death over the past couple of decades, really. You know, they don't seem to exist anymore. So maybe this is what's needed to make people know them again, although is the film actually just for, like, 40-year-olds that watched those old cartoons when they were growing up? Or is it for a new generation of kids? I mean, who knows? It's sometimes a bit difficult to tell like, who it's actually for. Because, like, to be to be honest, I think like the classic kind of Scooby Doo is is really badly dated and largely very very repetitive. Yeah, yeah. charmingly so. Oh, I would welcome an attempt to to do something with it, like to to revive it and update it for a modern audience. But at the same time, hold on to why it was so popular in the first place. Which I honestly don't think would be that difficult. Well, have you seen the Vic Cook series, uh, Mystery Inc.? I think it's called Mystery Inc. I have not, but that is what that is. <laughs> the right, you were just talking about. Yeah, it. Um, but the sort of notion of Vic Cook doing that is, is like, okay, I'm interested. Yeah, it's oldish. I think it's actually supposed to be a sort of prequel to the actual series, even though they fight like real monsters and things. But uh, have a look. Like, it's, that is what you're looking for and it already exists well definitely need to check that out then. <laughs> yeah uh, I'll give Scoop a watch at some point the prospect of seeing like Dick Dastardly and stuff again quite fun I hope they'll come out with a new version of Wacky Races at some point I'd love to see that again yeah but actually that was one of my favourites Wacky Races and also Captain Caveman yeah and the Flintstones that was them as well so whatever happened to the Flintstones do they still exist I think that there was there was some kind of like crossover with the WWE of like Stone Age wrestling thing, but I honestly haven't actually investigated it for years. Seth MacFarlane's been trying to bring back the Flintstones for years and turn it into kind of a more like Family Guy esque sitcom in terms of the audience it's aimed at, which it could um, work, I suppose. But you know, do we really need to see that? Do we really need another Family Guy esque thing when Family Guy still exists? Yeah, I haven't watched it in years, but yeah, yes. which some people might be surprised to learn. Yeah. It's like, hang on, is that still on? Yeah. Unfortunately, it is. Yeah, I gave up on it because I just couldn't take it anymore. It was just a drag to watch. Even 20 minutes a week is just too much. Yeah, it's pretty much the same kind of thing I felt about South Park. Well, I'm behind on South Park, but I do intend to catch up on it one of these days. As I do with many things. Yes, yes, the, the intent is always there, but then getting around to actually doing it is another matter entirely. Yep. Exactly. So, Hanna-Barbera stuff, maybe don't like it, maybe do. Scoob is out. It was supposed to be in cinemas, but it's not because there are no cinemas. So, you can catch it on some streaming stuff. I think you have to pay for it, probably too much. Watch it or don't. It's up to you. My Rise Against is going to be the new trailer for Christopher Nolan's film Tenet, or Tenet, or however the hell you're supposed to it. Now, this is going to be really controversial because we're not allowed to say anything against the great Christopher <laughs> Nolan, but I'm going to say something against the great Christopher Nolan. It's not that I think the film will be bad, I think it's probably going to be alright. It looks a bit too much like Inception for me, which is my biggest issue with it. I feel like I've seen it before. It's just, instead of dreams, it's now time, but in dreams, time is something that you can mess with. And in this film, time is something you can mess with for some reason. And the trailer's really vague, which it was always going to be and this is the film that might revive movie theaters in two months. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. If they're open in two months, that, that'll be a miracle in itself. But 
I don't think people are going to come out of their houses just to watch this, but I'm in this minority that seems to think that Christopher Nolan is heavily overrated. I think his films are good, and in some cases great, but I don't think he's this perfect example of filmmaker that people seem to credit him with. And I think this film just looks kind of okay. I watched the trailer and I'm like, do I want to see this film based on this trailer? And I thought, no, I actually don't. But I'll see it anyway whenever I can get back in the cinema. So yeah, not impressed so far. To be honest, I'm actually kind of the same, really. Because the general reactions to the trailer were, were about how spectacular and mind-blowing it is. And I was just watching it and thinking, well, okay, this is just kind of normal things, but being played backwards. And that in itself as a visual effect is really not that kind of spectacular. And I can't help but think that in the, in the film itself, uh, like the notion of some things uh, suddenly going backwards in time while other things continue going forwards, after a while it might get a little bit tiring to see that thing happen over and over again. And unless there's something really interesting done with it, then I think it is quite li- limited in how interestingly it can be used. And the other thing that kind of frustrates me about Nolan in general is that he seems to have fallen for his own hype about how he is unable to do any wrong. And then whatever he does is like infused with this godlike arrogance that it will be a perfect vision that everybody is going to love. And so he can just do whatever he wants all the time. Which I suspect is part of the marketing of a film and why it's been so deliberately vague. He's thinking, oh, audiences are going to love this. Yes, I won't tell them anything and they'll lap it up. <laughs> yeah. I think his films are largely immune to criticism in some circles. So if you're like, I didn't like The Dark Knight Rises, they'll be like, well, you're wrong. Shut up. And I really don't like The Dark Knight Rises. I think it's a bad film, but I've said that before and I've said it many times and I will say it many more times. But yeah, I think his films are good. I think Batman Begins is possibly the best Batman film we've ever had, still. Even though the dialogue's rubbish. I prefer it to The Dark Knight. Inception is fine. I really like Memento. Memento's a really clever film. It's instantly also dealing with time going reverse, sort yeah, of. Kind of, yeah. I like The Prestige a bit. I mean, I find it kind of dull, but I quite like it. I think it's interesting enough. When you work out the twist long before the twist even hits, it's a bit less than exciting but what was the other one what was the other one following i've not seen that one so that was his first one for memento yeah i've not seen that one there's dunkirk didn't like that that much that was okay which again there's a time gimmick in that an artificial time gimmick but there's a time gimmick true yeah yeah so yeah i don't know i'm sure it'll be fine but I'm sure it will be heralded as a masterpiece of cinema, even though it won't be. Undoubtedly. And I can foresee scores of tweets about it, accompanied by that meme of Martin Scorsese pretentiously declaring, this is cinema. Yeah, probably. I think the thing about Christopher Nolan is he is good at what he does, obviously. He's very good at what he does. But I think since he broadly makes blockbusters, so films that are going to be seen by a lot of people, since they tend to be a cut above your average blockbuster in terms of intelligence, they're seen as much more than they actually are because a lot of cinema viewers will probably spend most of their time watching fairly dumb blockbusters 
So when they see one that has a little bit of brains, they're like, oh my god, this is genius. I've never seen anything like this. And it's like, no, it's just because it's a bit cleverer than Bloodshot. <laughs> yep, which, to be honest, is actually not that difficult. Yeah, exactly. But if studios are always going to assume their audiences are stupid and appealing to the most common denominator, then when films are slightly cleverer, that's always going to stand out when maybe they shouldn't. But I guess the fact that he gets to make original material on a high budget and get it out there is a good thing because there's not a lot of that. So it's a mixed bag, really. The Christopher Nolan debate is a mixed bag, I guess. It's something that I think few people are ever going to completely agree on. Though I really do think we should uh, do away with the notion of him being immune to criticism because that just stalls any kind of conversation. Yeah. And if when discussing film you've already decided that the other person is simply incorrect and not worth listening to, then what's the point of talking about these things in the first place? Yeah. People just want to be in an echo chamber, it seems. I only want to talk to people that agree with me. Sounds like the government. <laughs> Topical. Okay, so we've knelt before Rose Against Stuff, so time to move on to our feature topic. <laughs> Batwoman Season 1. A new CW out of our show that got a full season order and sort of almost completed its first season. Almost. Very so close. close. Yeah. Imagine getting this in your first season. That's brutal. And some other issues in your first season. Also brutal. Which we will come to. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, without spoiling, what did you think of season one on the whole? Well, on the whole, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good introduction to a character that probably not too many people might be aware existed before going into it and it gave a great background of who she is and what drives her and largely developed in in a fairly measured and nuanced way i did find it quite uh, quite as compelling as i did for say the first seasons of flash or arrow but i do still think it has the potential to grow into something pretty good once it figures out exactly how it's going to operate and have a bit more stability both on and off screen yeah i liked season one i think i liked it more later on than i did in the beginning i found it really mediocre to start with and then as it started getting into the groove of what it was going to be about started making different points about different things started expanding bits that needed to be expanded i think it got so much better i think the cast were really good they've got some good characters in there it doesn't suffer the same issue that supergirl did in its first season where supergirl felt like a spin-off to a superman show that never existed so it was like here's supergirl oh look jimmy olsen's here here's lois lane's sister these things that you would expect to crop up in a spin-off here's a mention of that thing that happened over on that superman show that you used to watch even though there was no superman show that we used to watch so it was weird in that sense but i think batwoman got in its groove early on i think they mentioned batman maybe a few too many times and there's too many comparisons but it doesn't feel like it leans heavily on the events of a batman history that never existed in the context of this like show's universe so good in that respect there are some issues and we'll definitely get to that so I think we should just launch into spoilers right now sounds good to me that's paragraph and Pipkin swing on in so we'll kind of start with character and we'll bring in plot as we go because the two should be intertwined in good pieces of media 
So let's start with our lead character, Kate Kane, who's Batwoman. What did you think of Kate as she kind of begins in the show, kind of where she came from and her decisions and what fuels her and all that stuff? I did quite like her right from the beginning. I thought she was an interesting character, particularly when various aspects of her history are revealed. It gives you a better understanding of what drives her, specifically with her being kicked out of military academy basically for being a lesbian, which is something I was surprised that they included, because even though homophobia obviously still exists in a big way, things have improved somewhat since the character debuted with that origin, so I thought it it might have seemed a little little bit dated, but the way that it was portrayed, it did not seem like that at all. It seems like, yeah, this is definitely something that could happen. Perhaps that's just a result of my own privileged perspective, but there was certainly happy to be corrected on it. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago that the don't ask, don't tell thing was thrown out in the US military, so I forget how long ago that flashback was, it was a few years ago, probably five years, it's always five years. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. I can't remember, it might not be five years, it might only be like a year or something like that, but whatever it is, it's not that long, so it's something that people will be aware of, and I think something that the production team forget when it suits them is that this does exist in an alternate reality where it doesn't have to play out the same, but it's really weird when they reference things like the Cuban Missile Crisis or the death of JFK and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, did it happen in this universe? There's cities that don't exist in ours, so does history have to play out the same way? I mean, you had it in Legends Season 1 where Ray and Kendra posed as a married couple before marriage between whites and blacks was legal in the United States. So that selective cultural touchstones that they can draw on. It's like, no, no, in this universe it was legal because it suits us this week, but next week... JFK was murdered because that suits us this week and that and so on. So I think it's fine that that's included because I think it's something people will be aware of. And it's such an obvious injustice as well. It's like, oh, why do the military care if someone's gay or not? When they're actually asked that question, it's like, I don't know, we just don't think it's right for some reason. Because basically being straight is the normal, natural state of being. Anything with that is an aberration and cannot be allowed because other people might think it's okay to be gay and they might decide to become gay and other kinds of bigoted nonsense that I would have difficulty discussing without launching into a tirade of things which would make you run out of sound effects to blank out all my swearing. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that plot sets up something fundamental about the character, the fact that she doesn't like to hide anything about herself, which is an interesting challenge when you become a masked vigilante, because that is resolving to hide a big part of yourself. And that's something she initially has trouble with, lying to her friends and family and so on about the fact that she's secretly Batwoman. And I think her initial motivation is to protect her family by hiding behind this mask, which quickly fades away when Alice immediately figures out who she is. (laughs) So it does become, okay, I'm going to wear this mask as a symbol of hope for Gotham because I've accidentally given hope to the people in the city after their hero supposedly abandoned them. That was five years ago. So there we go. There it is. Five years. Bruce Wayne has been gone for five years. And it does also come back around again in the episodes after Crisis, during an episode where the presumption that Batwoman, a abstract person, is straight. Yeah. And Kate is grappling with the dilemma of how she can truly be the paragon of truth if she isn't able to live all aspects of her life 
in everything she does, which is part of the reason why she decided to give this expose to Kara to declare that that woman is a lesbian, which then also brings up the kind of reactions that the people have to that kind of thing in real life. Like, why can't we keep politics out of our superheroes? Which is uh, something that Vessel Fairchild repeats verbatim. It's annoying to hear someone say that kind of crap, but at the same time, people do genuinely think like that, but believe that people's lives are, for some reason, political talking points that should be discussed whether or not they're acceptable. Which I find revolting yeah and the way that kate approaches her decision is quite interesting because it talks about the whole okay i'm putting a label on batwoman here if i make this decision is that a good thing or isn't it and it made me think about spider-man because part of the appeal of spider-man in terms of people that wouldn't know he's peter parker obviously is that he could be anyone because his entire body is covered up by this costume so he could be white he could be black he could be asian he could be anything and people can look at them and potentially see themselves. So if Batwoman's a sort of asexual symbol, that means that she could, in theory, inspire more people. But then in that episode, she gets to see a young lesbian who has no role models, really needs role models, and really needs something to look up to. That ultimately spurs our decision to, no, 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 we probably have plenty of straight superheroes, especially on Earth One as it was at the time. So... Yeah, it's time for a lesbian superhero to give people some hope because, I don't know, does Supergirl, well, she wasn't on Earth 1 at the time, but does Supergirl have a sexual identity in the public? Probably not. Probably only insofar as sleazy men having lascivious thoughts about her miniskirt, which you don't really need to go into. But aside from that, I don't think so, no. Because Dreamer came out as trans publicly, but I don't think in the show that Kara and the Supergirl guys has made any kind of identifying statements regarding her, why she leans, in effect. I think it's generally because things like being straight and cisgendered, they're seen as the default. If no one makes any explicit statements about themselves, then that's just what they are presumed to be. Yeah. I'm just mentioning what you're saying about Spider-Man, about how he's important because he can be anybody and anybody can see themselves as him. That is a kind of important thing. But I think having characters who identify as part of marginalised communities, I think it is important to have that, that kind of thing specifically, because that then allows these marginalised people to see themselves specifically as these heroes, and basically it makes them feel seen, and less isolated and disregarded. Yeah. I think that's something they could have done more with Kid Flash, because the original Flash is white. Obviously white, because you can see enough of his face. And Kid Flash is obviously not, so they could have done something with that and didn't. But that's another failing on the Flash's part. And it gets another kick in. Anyone listening to these would we think we have to have a checklist. Yeah, that's it. Here's no, a, like, like, number one, must flag off the Flash. Yeah, well, that's a thing. thing. Yeah. But the thing is, like, Supergirl and this show have made it part of their DNA that they're going to address these issues. And they're better for it, whereas the Flash has decided not to despite the fact that it does have a diverse cast and they live in a world where that diversity isn't always accepted. So they should really be doing something with it. But this show is doing something with it. I think the Batwoman coming out as a lesbian doesn't help the maybe she's Kate Kane theories. Um. (laughs) I know a badass lesbian with clear military training as well. And that was part of her thought process as well, that it would be harder for her to separate the two 
or it'd be harder for other people to not see the two are connected. So if the public believed that Batwoman was straight, then it might take the heat off Kate a bit, but it doesn't seem to be a problem. Sophie does know, but isn't really admitting it. Then Jacob is just, well, he's mental. He's yeah. unhinged. But he's basically varying levels of mad, shouty military commander that the episode requires of him each week. Yeah. I've always thought that Duke Grey Scott, he looks like a generic middle-aged tough guy. Yeah, I mean, I swear he has always been middle-aged. <laughs> yeah, he has. He's never been anything younger than that. Yeah. When you look at him, you're like, there's nothing really about you that stands out necessarily. I think it's just for, for the most part, he has functioned as a plot device rather than a character. Yeah. He's there because certain things need to be done and certain orders need to be given. And very little of the plot has involved him personally, which is a bit odd, considering that a large amount of plot is basically about the loss of his daughter. Yeah, and he was meaninglessly in prison for a couple of episodes and all that stuff. Weird. Just, just a weird character. But sort of back to Kate, I found her really interesting. I think Ruby Rose played her perfectly as well, because to look at her, you think, ah, yeah, she's like, nothing phases her. She's a tough cookie, so to speak. But she's not. There's plenty of moments of vulnerability She's quick to open up to people when she feels ready to do so. She's very stubborn, but she'll admit when she's wrong eventually, and so on. I think that they built something really deep and nuanced around her, and I think Ruby Rose played that brilliantly because it's almost unexpected when she breaks down a bit because you don't expect her to just to look at her. And if you look at her in previous roles as well, she's always kind of very pulled together and tough. So to play with that range, I think, worked really well. I completely agree. I've only seen her in various film roles that she's done before. The Meg. Yeah, Meg and uh, the new Triple X movie. John Wick, where she dies after like five minutes. Things like that, where she didn't really have a great deal of character to play with. I imagine she was probably more interesting to watch in Orange is the New Black, but I never actually watched that. Same. So I actually need to ask Jana about it, because she was obsessed with that for the fortnight it took her to binge the entire thing. So watching her have such a varied and nuanced character to play and to demonstrate the kind of range that has largely been denied her so far was really interesting to watch. And I think she did a great job in making Kate seem a real person and not just an assortment of storytelling tropes, which she could so easily have been. Yeah. And I think the way she relates to other people is, is really good. They built a lot of interesting dynamics around her. I found the Alice dynamic a bit up and down. I think for the most part it was done well, but there's some bit where it's like, okay, what are you trying to achieve here? Yeah, I think for me it didn't quite work as much just because I find Alice a really annoying character. Oh yeah, she's annoying, yeah. And also because her motivation seems to vary week to week. One week she's desperately trying to prove to Kate that, that she isn't Beth and that she, she's moved beyond Beth. And then the next week she'll be really upset and disappointed that Kate has given up on her and won't believe that she's her sister. I suppose you could put it down to the fact that Alice is completely mental, but I wouldn't though. I just put it, put it down to writing that could have been tighter and more consistent. And because... She has such inconsistency. Then it was difficult to establish a proper relationship between her and Kate because what each of them was attempting to achieve was constantly differing. So it was impossible to get any sense of perspective as to how it's actually developing. I thought it was interesting the episodes where, or it was just one episode really, where the 
alternate universe Beth washed up on Earth Prime and the decision had to be made on whether to kill Alice or let Beth survive because apparently both couldn't coexist. Because that's the multiverse rule yeah. now. It was two episodes. Yeah, it was definitely two full episodes, wasn't it? And then one where she just turned up at the end. It was a big surprise. I found that interesting because it gave you that sense of what Kate's life could have been like if she'd managed to save her sister. And then she had that guilt to play with about the whole, oh no, if I'd run into the car, I could have saved her, but I didn't because I was too scared. And she blames herself for a bit, which is one issue. But I really liked seeing that. And then the moments that Kate and Alice would spend together where it would be clear that there was affection there like that scene where Kate thought she was going to die where she was just really torn up about it and just little bits here and there where they would relate to each other and you would get that sense that there is still a little part of her lost sister in there but it would would quickly be stamped out by the fact that she's about to kill Kate's stepmother or she's about to try and kill someone close to her you know that kind of stuff but there is something there. I maybe dragged on a bit too much. And I remember thinking in the first episode that she was a one-episode villain because she was so poorly done in the pilot. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. Uh, so she saved Sophie from this like random Alice villain. Cool. Well, we'll be on to something else next week. And then they reveal the whole sister thing. I'm like, oh, no. I've got the rest of the season of this, at least. Oh, well, I already assumed that she was going to be the main villain. They have, they have like, the whole family connection. Oh, well, I was pretty glad that it was actually revealed in the first episode because it seemed to be so blatantly obvious that Alice was Beth, even without prior knowledge from the comics. So to see that drag out and none of the characters figuring it out while you as a viewer remain so far ahead of them is really frustrating to watch. So I'm glad they just got it out of the way as a revelation and then we're able to build on it. Yeah, as soon as they showed you the flashback of Batman trying to save them and one doesn't manage to get saved, you can pretty much figure out that, oh, the sister will be back at some point because you didn't actually see her die. She just fell. As Chris would say, you didn't see the decapitated corpse. Yep. So that's that. Yeah, so that that flashback was clearly going to be meaningful. I mean, I haven't really read much of Batwoman comics, so I just assumed the sister would come back as a villain later on. Because the way that Alice appears in the first episode, it is as if she's it's just a villain of the week. She's going to kidnap some people, and it's just enough to spur Kate to wear the costume, but she doesn't need to be much more than that. I think that's a failing on what they were planning to do in the first episode, and the fact that I really hadn't read up on much about what they were planning to do with the series at all, so... I didn't know that Rachel Scarston was going to be in it as a series regular, for example. I just knew that she was in it and that she had been in Birds of Prey before this. So I suppose that having that advanced knowledge of her being the main villain would be like a bit of a tacit clue towards her being a sister, which she might not have picked up otherwise, I suppose. Yeah, because if you just watch that episode in isolation without any background knowledge, she's not very well done at all, and there's nothing that suggests that there's any more to her than this episode. Because she was a bit of a... Nothing villain, yeah, really. No great elaborate scheme, just yeah. there to serve a purpose. There was a few things that went nowhere in the first episode. Come to think of it, there's that weird flashback of Kate swimming through icy water and training with some, some I don't know, expert guy. I just assumed that that was the kind of training and endurance that she has been through to justify how much of a badass she is. And that's clearly what it was. And I kind of got the whole League of Shadows. Batman Begins vibe from that scene yeah. but it doesn't go anywhere and it's never brought up again and I was like alright so we're going to get flashbacks to her learning how to be Batwoman from this guy okay so basically this is going to be her Oliver on the Island yeah. sequence 
I mean, I'm glad they didn't do that because they've already done that. But at the same time, why include this? I think it was one of the things that they brought in to begin with that they might have planned to include more of it in, in the future and then kind of change the mind yeah. like halfway through. Because it wasn't the only thing that seemed to have been not quite thought through. The whole thing about, about Sophie's husband. Because in, I was assuming that, that was going to be a major thing. And with the inevitable CW love triangle between him, Sophie and Kate. But then after a few episodes, they realised they didn't know what they were going to do with him and just quietly got rid of him. That whole plot was weird as well because... Right, Sophie's lying to herself by having a husband. Fair enough, we get that. But what I would have quite liked to see is more work done on the relationship she had with her husband. Like, how did that start? Because obviously, she, or hopefully she wouldn't just meet this guy and be like, I'm going to marry him so that people don't think I'm a lesbian. You know, there must be something there. I would certainly hope so. And enough that you would think that there would be something for him to pick up on, that there was something off about the relationship. Yeah. Because like in the beginning, I just took it to just suggest that she was bisexual rather than having a thing of her just kind of trying to delude herself. And that would have been more interesting because then it would have been less focused on the fact that, oh no, she's definitely kidding herself. It's like, oh no, we can have love triangles that are a little bit more complicated than the ones you've seen before because they've all been straight love triangles that we've had before. Now we can have a mixed gender love triangle. I mean, I'm still going to hate it, but... <laughs> It's something slightly new, at least. The potential of a different dynamic is there. If for nothing else, not everyone involved is straight, which is something that we've not not seen before. Yeah, and I think the well, the love triangle never really came to anything. And the thing that struck me the most is I can't even remember the guy's name. But the, I was just the, thinking that myself. Yeah. The husband seemed to be just a nice guy. You know, he didn't seem to deserve what he was getting because he was kind of getting strung along, and he very quickly realised that. And then he was like, I'm going to bugger off and give you some time to figure things out. She figures things out, and it's like off screen that it's just thrown aside. I mean, does he not still work with the Crows, and should he not still be about? I think maybe they probably hired someone a bit too, quote-unquote, famous for that role, so they probably didn't have a lot of access to him. Possibly. And the most thing I was quite surprised about was not including any scenes of him in very little clothing, because that's the kind of thing the CW loves. And yeah. also, he, he was one of the central characters in a horror TV series called Bitten, uh, which is about, about werewolves, in which he was frequently in a state of undress, and what we said is a pretty impressive specimen of the male form. Yeah. <laughs> well, he wouldn't be on a CW show if he wasn't. That's true. They managed to dodge that. That's something they consistently dodged, to be fair. I can't think of any sort of gratuitous random conversation had while man is shirtless scenes, <laughs> which I deeply appreciate because sometimes it just makes me feel bad when I'm sitting there <laughs> chomping down on, on a bag of sweets as Stephen Amell's doing the salmon ladder and I'm just, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's all it does. It just makes me feel much In- less... Inferior. Yeah, I'm just like... Nah, that's <laughs> never going to be me. There's like, no, no point even trying now, is there? Yeah. Where's that bag of M&M's? <laughs> I need another bag of M&M's after watching this. Just, to, you know, to eat my feelings. But yeah, it wasn't a good story, really. And I think Sophie was consistently poorly done over the run of the show. I think once she started to wake up a bit and started to open up about who she was and what it was she stood for and was a bit truer to her own identity, that 
was much better. I think she got taken down a more interesting path when that finally happened. It just took too long. Yeah, because quite a lot of times it seemed that her purpose was as the, the love interest character. I was just there to throw complications into Kate's development as Batwoman and also to be a complication in her life without actually having much purpose or agency of her own. But exists with how she used to relate towards Kate. Yeah, and one of the strongest episodes for her was the one where she came out to her mum and her mum just totally rejected her. Just told her she was being stupid and she had a great husband and all this stuff. All the stuff that you would guess people who are coming out would not want to hear. And is a big reason why a lot of people don't feel able to come out. Yeah. And I think that's something the CW shows have been largely scared to approach. Because in Supergirl season two, when Alex came out, everybody was supportive and that was fine. So she was scared of that thing that was happening to her scared of accepting this massive change in her life and everybody supported her and that was fine everybody she came into contact with was like yeah not a big deal to me go on we don't mind and now we're getting to the point where it's like oh no people are going to not like this and people are going to move away from me and it is going to potentially destroy relationships i mean i suspect there'll be a point where sophie's mum comes to her senses and accepts her but we're while away from that now i guess and it's good to see because that is a reality of it isn't it where people aren't always going to appreciate what you are or agree with it and that is an obstacle that you need to sometimes just deal with you're not going to change their minds you just have to accept the fact that because you've opened up about who you are your relationship with your mother is now over because she doesn't want to be near you anymore. Yeah, it's an important thing to include because, as I say, it is a reality for many people and not shying away from the negativity that gay people are forced to endure is a strength of the show. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I have no experience. Maybe not, obviously. I have no experience of dealing with that kind of thing. I haven't really heard of... People I know experiencing too many issues and things like that themselves. But it is an interesting thing to tackle and it's an interesting perspective to get because it just makes people seem misguided and horrible on the surface. But in some cases you can almost understand where they're coming from because it's a big shock in that sense, especially if they're so old-fashioned. I'm probably not articulating it very well, but I think it's eye-opening to see the fact that, oh no, this is why people are afraid of admitting these things. This is a big problem that we have in our society. A lot of people are making that base assumption that straight is the right way and everything else is somehow othered. And you do have a lot of people that subscribe to the notion that this isn't right, you shouldn't be like this. Absolutely. And to pretend otherwise is just kidding yourself. Yeah. So you can imagine that people might have watched Supergirl or whatever, or even in The Flash when they had the captain who was openly gay pretty much mm, since yeah. his first appearing. He just mentions his husband and then you just don't think about it ever again. Or an arrow, Curtis is there, talks about his husband and his first or second appearance and so on. So you might have people out there who's been like, well, that wasn't my experience. You know, I don't speak to my family anymore because of this. And this tolerance is nice, but it's not my life. So now they're getting that, I guess. Yeah, because the only comparable moment to that I can think of that we've had in the Arrowverse so far was it was in The Flash the first time that Pied Piper appeared and he mentioned being rejected by his family after he came out to them. But that was just more of a throwaway detail about the character rather than any real exploration into the experience. 
There was Maggie and her dad as well over on Supergirl. Yes. Right, yeah. Although that was tied up with the whole being Mexican thing as well. So the two sides were connected as in the, it's already hard enough being Mexican, but you've got to be gay as well. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) You know, give yourself a break. As if she had a choice in being either of those things. You're doing yourself no favours here. You couldn't choose to be a Mexican, but you can maybe choose not to be gay. So please don't be gay. And then you had that moment where he tried to be tolerant and then just couldn't do it as well, which might be another thing that people encounter. Again, I have no idea. I mean, there's such a wide spectrum of these things and I have such limited experience in it being a straight white male. Am I really the best person to be talking about this? Maybe not. But also... I'm the only resource I've got on this podcast. So the only real perspective I have, aside from a few friends coming out when in high school, was when was when my sister felt okay coming out to us. The thing about that was, was that she already knew that, that we would accept her. So it wasn't so much about whether or not we knew that she was gay. It was more about her being okay with us knowing that she's gay, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And there are actually some other sort of branches of, of the extended family. Not wishing to generalise, but of a more religious bent. <laughs> who she didn't mention anything to. Yeah. But, but again, her choice um, yeah. and her being comfortable living her life like that is the most important thing. Yeah. And ideally, we would live in a world where you don't really have to go and tell people what orientation you are. Don't go and tell people, hi, I'm Craig, I'm straight. Because not relevant. But I guess we do still live in it where it needs to be, if you're something other than straight, it's relevant that you have to come out as that which is weird when you think about it because it is just a detail about yourself that people do or don't need to know. I think it wouldn't be something that we would feel it necessary to mention if we did live in the world where where the default assumption was something else. Well, or there's no default assumption, I suppose, is what you want to get at. Yeah, exactly. But I think we're a very long way from getting there. Yeah, definitely. And my personal experience is I've only ever met people who are openly gay and have been for a while so I've never met someone that's kind of at that stage where they're struggling to decide whether to tell people or when to tell people or how to tell people so my experience of it is very limited but I can only come from the perspective of saying yeah I think they did it well on Supergirl I think they did it well enough on the other shows where they just had these openly gay characters and draw a big deal to it and I think this show is doing well in its approach as well because I guess I believe the sincerity of the moments, and maybe that's what it is. I believe that that's something that would really happen. I don't think it's in any way sensationalised for drama or anything like that. And I always think back to that X-Men 2 scene where uh, Bobby's coming out as a mutant to his parents. Yeah. Ian McKellen sort of changed that sequence. He changed it. It's like, no, no, we should make it a like this. And it was his idea, the have you tried not being a mutant question and things like that, which we all laugh at, but it's a genuine question that people have been asked, I guess. Exactly. And that question, in reality, is just as stupid. Yeah. Have you tried not being gay? So have you tried not being straight? Have you tried not being whatever, you know, anything else that you might be into? I also think for some people is that if it actually was a choice, if they could choose to not be this thing which makes them the target of so much hate, disregard and ridicule, then perhaps they might choose to not not be it. Well, that's what Sophie was trying to do, wasn't it? She was trying to choose not to be gay, but she couldn't. It's something kind of painful to watch. The character kind of subject themselves to that because they're internalising 
other people's prejudice yeah and accepting that there's something wrong with them that they need to fix yeah and i wish the show had done more with that rather than just kind of paying lip service to it every episode or two it was a real shame because there was real potential there but i think they just kept constantly dropping the ball with sophie there was also the thing i found really interesting is when she makes that defiant statement about i'm going to be true to myself and then she kisses batwoman which is actually her just living in a different shell which I found quite interesting. It's the idea that, yeah, okay, I've opened up about this, but she's not considering the fact that she can never actually have a relationship with Batwoman. Batwoman is an idea. She's not a person, and she's not... I mean, she is a person, obviously, but the whole concept, the symbol that is Batwoman is not a person. You can't have a relationship with that. It's not something you could bring down to Sunday dinner with the parents. It's just this weird... Yeah, you are actually just hiding behind another lie here. And initially seems like a good thing for her, and it's a great step forward that she takes, and even Kate's happy with it. But eventually they just both have to realise, okay, this is not real. This can't be real. And her going down that path of idolising being with somebody that she can't be in a relationship with, truly, it then absolves her of any responsibility of not progressing after having made such a big life decision. She is able to stagnate in this fantasy, and the very fact that it doesn't progress is something out of her control. And she doesn't need to deal with herself, because she can't. And it was an impulse, and she needed to follow that impulse, absolutely. And it was important that she learned why it's not something she could be happy with it was never going to be a long-term thing and the way they played building up to that realization was really good i think that it was a great arc for sophie in that particular episode where that happened and again we need more of that we need more of really exploring how she thinks and why she thinks she the way she does yeah and it was just disappointing that there wasn't more exploration of that because it did have the potential to be quite interesting yeah definitely I mean, it was only season one and there was only so much time, but yeah, it all felt so kind of sloppy and unfocused, at least in terms of the way they portrayed Sophie. I did like it when she got closer to Julia. I liked the way they bounced off each other. I mean, it was obvious the way it was going, and I actually would have liked it just to end in a friendship. I think the, oh, look, these two people, they get along, therefore they must be building to a relationship. I think that's tired and played out at this point. Yeah. Could it not just be a good friendship? Can we not just have that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, because there's been dozens of women that I've been really good friends with and managed to not have sex with. Yeah, and men, for that matter. Indeed, yes. <laughs> so if you're in your formative years watching CW shows, it'll be oh, if I talk to this person enough, eventually we will end up being a couple <laughs> for a little while, and then it will all end in tragedy. That's how relationships work, right? TV has told me so. Yeah, it's... The way it is. Also, that when you're in high school, you're actually 25. Told me that as well. All true. And also, if you're a shy, awkward, nerdy girl, you'll end up with two hot guys fighting over you. Yep, pretty much. In all cases, without exception. But the Sophie-Julia relationship was good in a few ways. I think it was interesting the way that Kate felt like the outsider in there, as in Sophie opens up to Julia, not her. So Kate's happy that Sophie is progressing and being true to herself. But she's also unhappy that she didn't get to be there or be around when it happened and be in on the inner circle of it and then that conversation that Sophie and Kate had where Sophie said look if you're not comfortable with this I'll keep it platonic and Kate's like I just want you to be happy just go for it it's fine and obviously it's not fine but she's gonna let it be fine as much as she can I guess 
And I suspect that at some point they'll push for Sophie and Kate to end up being together properly. Yeah, that seems to be the end game relationship that they're building towards, whether it makes sense or not. Yeah, but let's, I just hope that when they do, we get something other than the same kind of tired relationship tropes that we've seen a dozen times previously. I think the problem with it is I don't think they seem to have an awful lot of chemistry. So it's hard to believe that a relationship between them is something you really want to see. I think because in the end they seem to want different things in a partner than the other is actually able to give. And it's kind of starting to get to the point where it seems that if they were together it would almost feel forced. And maybe it'll get better when the next actor comes in. Maybe they'll have better chemistry. <laughs> Quite possibly, yes. Oh, that's, that's a sore spot, that one. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think that Ruby Rose and, is it Christina Wolfe that plays Julia? They have great chemistry when they appear on screen, but Kate and Sophie, not so much. So it's weird. And we do know that they're prone to just changing their minds about the core relationships on these shows. Remember in Arrow, it was Oliver and Laurel were the sort of end game early on, and then mm-hmm. they changed that. Although I think that was largely down to the unexpected popularity of Flissy. Because she was originally only meant to be a one-shot guest character. Yeah. But because everyone responded to her so positively, they kept her around. Yeah. But even when she was introduced, they were still heading down the Laurel as Oliver's future sort of route. Oh, and yeah. Because it wasn't initially intended to be Felicity, but it then grew out of that when, when I realised how much more positively the others would respond to that. Also for me personally, it was kind of a good thing because I found Laurel a bit of an annoying character, to be honest. <laughs> I guess never really warmed to her. And then over on Flash, they've still forced the Barry and Iris relationship, even though I don't think it really makes sense. I don't want to get started, because I won't stop. <laughs> yeah, it's not the podcast for that. We've already done that. We've already yeah, yeah. kind of talked about that on the Flash one, sort of. <laughs> we should have vented enough already, but apparently we haven't. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that was a bit of Sophie. Said a bit more about her than I actually expected to. Turns out someone who's not that great has a lot to say about her. Weird. But she's yes. getting better, and that's the important thing. And I think she will continue to get better, assuming the show is allowed to survive for much longer. We shall see. So what about Luke? I really like Luke, even though he doesn't have a lot to do early on. He's the guy in the chair. He's that standard guy in the chair. But He's the person there who can use computers yeah. and do computer things yeah. and say technobabble. Yeah. But I like his little sarcastic responses to the way Kate does things. The fact that she keeps challenging her. The inadequacy he has as well it's, it's self inadequacy he has because he doesn't think he's as good as his dad he doesn't measure up in terms of intellect and so on when he probably does but he just doesn't have that confidence i really like all that yeah it's a really interesting part of his character and because there was the danger of him just being there to be the technical side of things provide technology and to explain computer things then giving him that added depth makes him far more interesting to watch and it also gives him something to develop towards as a character, because it's quite possible through his work with Kate, then he will realise the extent of his own worth and realise that he doesn't need to compare himself to his father to fully realise who he is. He can be his, his own person who doesn't need to be defined by his dad's achievements. He can be defined by his own achievements. And it's a nice touch as well, because inevitably when you introduce the son of another character that you might know from the source material, then they are always going to live in the shadow of them in some way or another. So the fact that his arc is he is living in the shadow of his father's accomplishments is a good starting point. 
I think Julia had something similar, although she's more confident in who she is. Well, I think she has a real obsession with proving herself as well. And putting aside the issue of how it's actually possible for somebody her age to be only Alfred's daughter and rather than granddaughter. <laughs> it's life in the old dog yet. <laughs> <laughs> she certainly does have a confidence in herself that Luke lacks. No, I think that's largely more down to her having achieved comparatively more in the same amount of life, if you like, as she is already in a position where she's putting her talents to good use and is being recognised and acknowledged for them. Whereas Luke is effectively just starting out and he hasn't done very much himself with which he is able to define his own accomplishments. It's weirdly unclear what he was doing before he teamed up with Kate. It seems that he was around in the whole Batman scenario because he knows a lot about Batman and he's always able to say, well, Bruce did this or Bruce did that or Bruce stood for this. And it'd be interesting to sort of see what his actual involvement was. I imagine that a lot of it probably would have come from his father. But I also think he might have had a personal obsession with Batman's exploits without knowing who he was. Maybe he was sitting next to his dad on the computer, learning a few things on the job kind of thing as well. That's entirely possible, yeah. And actually it would be interesting to see that explored. Yeah. And then the thing about him trying to avenge his father's murder and having to learn not to kill him was quite interesting. I think that when Kate accidentally killed, what's his name, Cartwright, I think the aftermath of that was kind of muted. It was weirdly brushed aside kind of quickly, as in she was painfully distraught over it for an episode or two, and then she seemed fine after that. I mean, I suspect that it will come back to haunt her now and again. But I think the approach to killing on the show was interesting in that respect. So the fact that they actually had Kate do it and then not later reveal that she didn't actually do it and he survived was a brave choice, although the whole, oh, why do you think the Joker's not around anymore? It's like, do we really need everything to be compared to what Batman did? Do we really need to, well, don't worry about the fact that you killed someone, because Batman did it as well, so we're not all blameless here. And can we not just have something that she has to deal with on her own without that guidance? Exactly. And also, saying that you shouldn't feel bad about something because somebody else did it, it doesn't really Makes sense because everyone functions within their own moral compass. Yes, and just because Bruce basically decided that it was it was okay to kill a Joker for whatever reason, it doesn't follow that that means Kate should immediately forgive herself for killing someone accidentally. And also by constantly comparing everything she thinks and does to everything that Batman thought and did, then that would only end up stunting her development as a person as a hero because if she is defining herself as somebody else then it stops her from being her own person yeah i mean the major difference is supposed to be that once batman killed the joker he gave up that was him he couldn't continue whereas she decides no no i've made this mistake but i'm gonna live with it and carry on and then it becomes about not tarnishing batwoman's standing within gotham so if Gotham were to find out that Batwoman killed him, would well, he be that bothered? Maybe not. But anyway, it's the whole idea of Batwoman as the symbol of sort of perfection and hope. Whereas Kate Kane is technically the murderer here because she did it privately out with the costume. Or it's supposed to make her worried that she can turn into what Alice is, and even though she 
probably could never do that unless she decided, oh, I quite like that, I'm going to keep doing it. So it's a difficult relationship with the, the concept of killing criminals that the show has at the moment. And I think the comparison to what Bruce did is just unnecessary because it's not about him and it shouldn't be about him. I think if one of Batman's villains turns up, then it's valid to bring up the fact that Bruce defeated him by doing this. It didn't seem to work, so we should try something else. That's valid. I think the whole comparing every decision that she makes to what Bruce would do is tired. And you're also very, very limited in how much you can do with it, and it just ends up becoming very, very repetitive. Yeah, and I don't think it was necessary in that context. Not in that context, and not really in... And the other either, because it's not a show about Batman. And I think that's kind of, kind of the point of it, really. Plus, she also had her own context that she could draw on in regards to Bruce in that situation. I met a Bruce Wayne during Crisis that was a murderer, and look at how he turned out. I don't want to be that. That's all you need. Yeah, actually. It's a pretty simple comparison. Yeah. That's never made, for some reason. Did others know about Crisis? Or... Did she not tell them? I can't remember. No, Crisis is known. At least Luke definitely knows about it. Because when Beth 2.0 turns up... Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, they mention it. I think he's the only one that knows. I don't think anybody else really needed to know or really benefit anybody else to know. Hmm. Maybe Mary, so she can understand some of the weird stuff Kate says. Yeah, well, the show has a difficult relationship with what Mary needs to know, doesn't it? Yeah, which is kind of a bit of a shame, really, because... She's actually my favourite character. I absolutely love her. I love Mary as well. Even when I was feeling lukewarm on the show, I thought she was the best thing about it. I think she's always used well. The way she can just... The shallow, rich girl, Instagram princess, and then the depth that she has as this deeply caring, deeply moral person. And the fact that she's just starved for a loving connection. You know, she really wants Kate to think of her as a sister... She really wants her family intact. She just wants to be loved, but not in the really superficial way, in a really like fundamental way. She just wants to feel that her life has worth to somebody else. Yeah. And that other people are able, able to see her for who she is as a person, not for just what they want from her or how much use she, she can be to them. I don't think it's, it's ever actually brought up, but I think there's this... Um, an interesting comparison that you can make between the duality that Mary has with, as I mentioned, the Instagram girl and also the passionate doctor, because it's basically a duality of life that she's living, which is pretty much the same kind of thing that Kate is, is trying to do, trying to compartmentalise two different things that she is and trying to find balance between them, which is something that Mary has evidently already perfected. Yeah, and I think it took too long to get to the point where Mary was in on the secret. It just kept dragging on and on and on. But as soon as she did find out the secret, it worked so much better. I liked the fact she kept ribbing Kate with hints that she knew, just letting her off the hook for the way she was acting and things like, well, I'm sure you were doing something more important and that kind of stuff. I thought that was quite funny. And then the way she became useful after it was known that she was in on the secret. So you had that episode where Kate was like, nope, not Lynn, you join the team. You may know, but you don't get to join the team and then she immediately approves that she should be on the team because she was, <laughs> I thought that was really good and I like the way she would challenge Kate as well especially in the last episode where Kate was talking about her relationship with Jacob and it's like nah you don't understand she's like no I do understand because he's my father too and I remember all these things that he did when you tested him in the past and it's as if Kate selectively forgets how well Mary does actually know her because she's been there she's been paying attention She's 
been forging this relationship that Kate has kind of been ignoring. And I think that's really compelling stuff. Because Luke is a good support structure for Kate in the sense that she can confide in him about Batwoman-related things, but he can't give her any emotional support because that's not the way he is. But Mary can. But she can also tell him when she's been a bit of an ass as well, which she definitely needs. Exactly. Because she is a very emotional person, so she's able to perceive what kind of emotional person needs to hear and feel at any given moment and because she has that extra closeness to Kate then as I mentioned like she is able to call her out in a way that Luke wouldn't be able to which I think which makes her even more interesting because whereas Luke is basically seeing Kate as Batwoman and relating to her pretty much only in so far as she is Batwoman and Mary is related to Kate as a sister and completely unafraid of doing or saying things that might make her angry or kind of things she doesn't want to hear but she needs yeah. to. And I think she's a good connection to Gotham City because Gotham City should be a character within the show. I think the best versions of Batman are the ones that have Gotham City be itself a fully fleshed out presence. And I think Batwoman does well with that in some respects. The one I'm specifically thinking of is the episode where all these people that had plastic surgery are all crazy. And, I mean, that's a symptom of our society, which is really bad that people expect to have to look beautiful and things like that. But in Gotham City, it makes you a villain. (laughs) And Mary's able to explain, oh, this person has this person's nose and they're upset about it. And this person took this person's lips. And it's, what is this? How is this life? And in that respect, Kate is the audience where she's like, why do people do that? And it's like, because that's what they feel like they need to do. And, of course, Mary, despite the fact that she's a kind of social media butterfly has never had any work done because she has to be like this purity. It's like, no, no, I'm just naturally beautiful enough. I'm fine. I don't mm-hmm. like I don't need any enhancement. But she can see why, but it's kind of like well it's a bit of a cop out, isn't it, in some ways. Yeah, because there is generally an overriding presumption that if you uh, have any kind of elective surgery, then you must be this incredibly obnoxious, vain person who is completely superficial and only cares about looks. Whereas majority of the time it's just people having things done to make them feel more comfortable about themselves yeah and there isn't anything intrinsically bad about that or anything that really should be judged no but if you're doing that because you feel like you have to do that to be appealing to others then that's a bit of an issue yeah but it's also something that the people for themselves something they should be responsible for because that's a result of external pressures making them feel that they need to be a certain thing they need to look a certain way because if they don't then they are somehow not of worth and that was an interesting thing i think the show consistently did this thing where the background of the villain of the week was really interesting as in the things that were going on around them but the villain themselves was rubbish and you had that with that executioner one was maybe just the executioner it was oh no i'm really interested in the society behind this but I'm really not interested in him. So you had this whole, these people are getting off their crimes, even though they obviously did them because of the corruption within the city. So I'm going to kill them because they should have died. That's interesting. But the fact is the, the villain, he was just some idiot in a mask. It didn't say much. And when watching that episode, all, all of the discussion about the, the morality of the justice system was really interesting to watch. Yeah. But then every time the executioner himself turned up, it was like, okay, bored now. Yeah. It's good that you have villains embody these kind of city problems because I don't think any of the shows have really done that. You don't get a sense that Star City is a living and breathing place with a 
distinct criminal underground that feeds into itself. It's more just, oh, no, there's another big criminal in town and they run everything now. Or when they're dealt with, there's another one and they run everything now and so on. And the insurance premium on warehouses keeps skyrocketing. And then when The Flash tries to do a kind of criminal gang warfare thing, it's just embarrassing. Yeah, so the fact that Batwoman is tackling that and they're making that their own and the fact is, yeah, Gotham City has to be better than that because of what it is because of the legacy and the history that they are inheriting whether they like it or not it has to be that because that's the whole point it's a city that's been infected to its core with crime and for some reason only a couple of people in bat costumes feel like they can deal with it its whole purpose is to exist as this black hole cesspit of human misery yeah even the crows are corrupt you know, declaring martial law and curfews and all this stuff. And you can see why people would rally behind Batwoman in those situations because it's like, no, this isn't right either. They're doing this under the pretense of keeping us safe. Yeah, it's exactly that is why people are so quick to rally behind Batwoman because she offers that things might change. It's possible that one day things might improve. Uh, so she's held up as this symbol of how they wish the world can be because of of this vortex of crime that, that exists at the heart of the city is something that anyone living there has very little experience of. Yeah, though it's weird that the only gang that seems to have any prominence is the Wonderland gang. There's never really any others mentioned. There is here and there, but not heavily. I think that's more just a requirement of the overarching plot of the series rather than anything specifically intended to be said about, about the city itself. Because there doubtless will be other criminal organisations that that will appear or gravitate towards the city. We just need to deal with Alice and her freaks and rabbit masks first. I wish they'd done a bit more with the Alice backstory, so I really like the stuff about her being kidnapped and her renouncing the Beth identity as a defence mechanism and even having that brother-sister relationship with Mouse that really helped her survive, and that was the important thing. She was driven insane, but she survived. But I would have liked to see the kind of next stage of that, where how did she get to be the head of this gang? What did she do? Surely she must have overthrown someone, or at least attracted a bunch of people to that gang, and then convinced them that all the Wonderland stuff was something that they should use as a theme and all that kind of thing. I just would have liked to see, okay, how did she get started as that criminal mastermind yeah and the lack of focus on that was something that has really frustrated me and specifically whenever she faces off with kate because kate is somebody who has however many years military training and how many more years always a mystical endurance trial training (laughs) uh, turning her into the baddest that she is and yet alice is somebody able to match her in a fight but there's not been any justification as to where she picked up those skills yeah and it's really frustrated me, because it seems like we're just supposed to accept her as like, oh, because she's the main villain, then she is equal of the hero, and that's it. Yeah. But the backstory stuff was great. I thought they did a really good job with that. Yeah, I, I agree with that, certainly. As it's a really good exploration into how imprisonment and isolation can basically drive somebody insane. Yeah. But I just wish there was, there was more beyond that. And maybe in season two they'll do the, here's how I started the Wonderland gang, or... The previous leader will come back or whatever. Who knows? Hopefully. Well, Alice's current motivation is a bit weird about the whole, I want to kill that woman for some reason, even though I didn't want to before. I get that she feels betrayed because Kate turned her in, but it, it doesn't quite track. 
I also hate that kryptonite is apparently Batman and Batwoman's weakness. <laughs> I'm really not sure where this whole thing's come from, because the whole point of kryptonite it was deadly to Superman. The reason it exists is to be deadly to Superman, and to everyone else it's just another rock. Just just one that looks a bit weird because it glows green. Unless it's in Smallville, where it can give you superpowers as long as something else happens to you while you're holding it. Just about to segue to that, yes. How <laughs> can <laughs> Dozens of supervillains like were created in that show, show by the end. Why does this guy have ridiculous. electric powers? Because he got electrocuted while holding kryptonite. Why does this guy have ice powers? Because he fell in a lake while holding kryptonite. <laughs> because of magical space rock, and it can do anything. Yeah. Although it did give Lex Luthor cancer after years of exposure, so you know it does have a kind of a cumulative effect on humans. That's true. Yeah. So not more from radiation rather than anything about kryptonite itself. Yeah, but the fact is it was seen as being radiation that was harmless to humans. It's not entirely. It's just... Right, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which is not something that they've done in the Arrowverse shows, because I guess no one's been exposed to it for that long. But in this case, it's if we fashion a bullet out of kryptonite, it will be able to penetrate the invincible bat suit. And I really hate the fact that we have an invincible bat suit. It's pointless. Why aren't all the superheroes wearing this? Why aren't they wearing it? And so having someone with that level of invulnerability immediately lowers the stakes in any kind of fight. Yeah. Anytime she's in a fight, well, she's going to win, isn't she? She might get beaten up, but she's going to win. Also, if Alice wants to kill Kate, why doesn't she just wait until she's not wearing the suit and shoot her? Easy. I mean, she knows who she is. She won't be protected forever. She will at some point be alone, and then she can strike easily. Well, it was not because it was like specifically Batwoman she wanted to kill and not Kate or something like that. Yeah, but you can't kill one without the other. And then just kill her and put the costume on her and then people get to see that you kill Batwoman. Easy. I think it's just more examples of plot logic. Yeah, but it's stupid. I mean, the invulnerable Batsuit is stupid enough. and So then you have really bizarre images of her just putting capes over bombs that are exploding around <laughs> her to protect people. I mean, I think the actual action in this show is a definite weak point. There aren't really many action sequences that are in any way memorable because I don't know if the suit is just too clumsy to make decent action out of. Although there was an episode directed by the Golden Boy action director that they have, or they certainly had over an arrow, James Banford. I forget which episode it was. It was one of the later ones. It was a clubbing episode with Magpie and stuff. Mm, yeah. The fights in that were way better than they had been in any other episode because that that director doing it. Then the other ones, they were kind of rubbish. And I don't think they did enough of the action sequences. Like an Arrow, every episode you'd have two or three. The Flash, you get a couple in each episode and so on. But it seemed like, okay, we're going to do a lot with character and themes and all that stuff, which is great because we do need a lot of that. But I'm watching a show about someone that puts on a costume and fights criminals and I'm not seeing a lot of costumes and fighting criminals. I think it was because there was so much focus on character in the series and that was their intent from, from the beginning and it seemed like they just didn't know how to balance it properly. Yeah. Because the amount of focus that they had on characters didn't leave that much room for action other than rudimentary afterthoughts. Yeah. Where, where it's almost like they were thinking, like, oh, right, we've not the fight scene for a while, so just kind of shovel in here and then it'll work. Yeah. Hopefully that's something they'll fix in season two. Get a bit more action. Get a bit more physically threatening enemies. Again, hopefully, yes. There's a lot of things we're hopeful for season two of this show, isn't <laughs> Including the fact that there will be one. Because <laughs> it might not be at this stage. I would say the other main villain of the season is uh, Thomas Elliot, or Tommy Elliot. Huss. Yes. The first episode he was introduced, he was pretty terrible. <laughs> Why is this guy Tommy Elliot? He was indeed, yes. In retrospect, they 
purpose on there was just to introduce him as Tommy Elliot so he can then become Hush. Yeah. And I think when he became Hush, it was really good. It's been a while since I've read the Hush comic or actually seen the film. I know in the film it's not even Tommy Elliot, it's Hush. Spoilers. It's the yep. Hitler, isn't it? In the film? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a twist. It was a weird it's twist. But a it, choice. It happened. It's something. But yeah, I remember in the Hush comic, it's the same thing as like Mask of the Phantasm. We're going to introduce a character early in the story. At the same time, we introduce a villain slightly later in the story. So they're obviously the same person. Which is fine. But they did it differently here because obviously Batman's not here. Bruce Wayne's not there. But I like the whole, he's got this unresolved hatred for Bruce Wayne that he can't resolve because Bruce Wayne isn't there for him to unleash it on. That's an interesting angle for him, I think. And also with the very source of his resentment being so ludicrous. Yeah. It's not fair that Bruce lost both his parents and then became a millionaire. <laughs> I wanted that too. It immediately obliterates any kind of empathy that you can have for him, which is entirely intentional. But it makes him, it's a character that you can't really take seriously. Yeah. Although I like to he was the voice of reason for to Alice, so to speak, towards the end. Yes, all things being relative. Yeah. When she was just killing anybody that couldn't translate that journal in five minutes. And he was like, you have to give people like 10 minutes to even look at the thing. You're not giving them any time to be able to translate this. And she's like, nope, kill them and bring me the next one. Yeah, I guess, because if there's one thing that makes people able to think clearly, it's abject fear for their life. (laughs) So he was well placed there. And then it's interesting that he gets the Bruce Wayne face and he gets to pretend to be Bruce Wayne for a bit. I like that. That was an interesting choice, actually. Yeah. And it was a good way to subvert the whole, how are we going to deal with Bruce Wayne in this show? It's like, we're going to introduce him, but we're not going to introduce him. You're going to see him, but he won't be there. Yeah. Some guy from Alphas. I forget the guy's name now. Warren Christie. Is he any good in Alphas? I've not seen it. He is actually, yeah. Do you think he'll be a good Bruce Wayne when he inevitably turns up actually as Bruce Wayne? I do actually, yeah, because his character in Elf, he was basically the action guy, you know. Okay. And the kind of talent he displayed in Alphas would translate pretty well to what you'd expect Bruce Wayne to be capable of. Cool, okay. That's interesting. Because I don't think it'll be too long before they use him as Bruce Wayne. But I guess we'll have a few episodes of the... Hi, Bruce, you're acting a bit strange. But it's weird because I don't think we've ever actually met in canon. Because it's not clear if Kate actually has ever met him. Well, I think the assumption is that they have just because they're family. Yeah. Because they live such different lives, it's conceivable they wouldn't have actually crossed paths. Yeah, it's a weird one, but... I like the approach of, we're going to introduce Bruce Wayne at the end of the season, but not really. I wasn't expecting that. It was a really good way to subvert what people might have assumed was was going to happen. Yeah. Because I imagine a lot of people were thinking that they would bring him back for the end of the series. If if nothing, just to establish his presence in the show and give him something to be more than just this kind of like ethereal concept. This invoked every now and then to give context to a situation. Although I did find it a bit weird that Obviously, we already saw Bruce Wayne during Crisis, played by Kevin Conroy, and Kate recognised him, so she had no issue with the fact that this guy was Bruce Wayne, hmm. and we've got younger ones. So presumably, he will eventually grow up to, or grow into being Kevin Conroy in a couple of decades or whatever. Possibly? I honestly don't think it was thought through that far ahead. Because I actually thought that Based on Crisis, when they introduced Bruce Wayne, it would be a slightly less mental version of the Kevin Conroy one. I think that was the general assumption, and especially because they cast Kevin Conroy. But he's also a good bit younger than I expected him to be. The Warren Christie face. 
Yeah, because if that man is someone who's been established as protecting Gotham for however many years, and then add that to the five years that he's been gone, then you'd expect somebody at least well to his 40s. Yeah, because how long ago was the bridge incident? That was like 15 years or something, wasn't it? Yeah, actually. And he was Batman then. Yeah, then it's maybe just something we're expected to just yeah deal with it. Just not think about Yeah. So I imagine we'll have a couple of episodes of the, Hi Kate, I've come back. Hey, you, where did you put that green rock that you've been lying around? I'm hoping for a little bit more subtlety, but I'm not holding my breath. I mean, I can already kind of see how it'll go. Kate will be fully on board with the fact that Bruce is back in her life. She won't see anything wrong. Luke will, and they'll argue about it a lot. Any issues with his behaviour, like she'll be able to explain away as something or other. Yeah, He's been gone for five years. You don't know what happened to him during those five years. I mean, look at Oliver Queen. He was on an island for five years. And look how much he changed. He was sometimes on an island for five years. <laughs> he was on an island for about three of those five years. <laughs> and even then, when it was there for long stretches, just, just sometimes just stopped off there before going back to Hong Kong or wherever. <laughs> yeah. Russia. Exactly. So that'll be an interesting one, potentially. Of course... Tommy Ellett wouldn't be the only one with a different face next season. Are we going to do that thing then? Yeah, might as well. We already discussed it during the Flash podcast a little bit, but I think this is obviously the perfect forum to discuss it more Yes, more in depth. And I imagine by the time this podcast actually goes out, the story will have changed again. But it seems like it was a mutual parting, which is something that we kind of guessed. It suggests that there was some kind of strife going on behind the scenes between her and the production team. Whatever strife it is, we'll never know, probably, but it seems that there's something. Yes, everyone's been very, very cagey about the specifics, which tends to lean towards something more serious than is being hinted at. Although, in the end, it's not essential that we know all the details about everything that happened. It's just enough to know that whatever it was, it was serious enough to make Ruby Rose not want to turns it to, to character that she's spent basically a year making her own and then some because she did Elseworlds as well that's true yeah yeah yeah. it's a weird situation but there's a few candidates who are apparently up for it there's Stephanie Beatriz Alana Huffman Wallace Day that's all I've heard of oh no someone else who was in The Librarians or something like that I was going to say Leslie Ann Brandt but I say no, because she's black. Yeah, well, that, that shouldn't matter. Anyway, there was someone else. I can't remember who it was, but I have no idea who they are anyway, so it's irrelevant <laughs> to this discussion. So, yeah. so let, us, let us continue. Out of the choices, I don't know. I don't know if these are even choices. I have no idea what the production team are going to do. And they never said who the runners-up were, so maybe they're asking them first, whoever they were. Presumably they didn't eye Ruby Rose immediately and then got her and thought, yes, we don't need to think about anyone else now. Presumably they had a few people that were keeping on the string, so to speak. I might just so. And there must be uh, some, some people that they had in mind. Yeah. So Stephanie Beatriz, I think, probably isn't going to happen because the worst thing you can do when recasting a role is put someone in it who is known for another role. So seeing Rosa from Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Batwoman might be a bit too much, a bit too recognisable. Yeah, and also, Stephanie Beatriz is quite keen on becoming She-Hulk. Yeah, she can do that too, I know. So I would just imagine they'd be hesitant to cast the uh, same person of two recognisable combat characters at the same time. 
Plus, she probably has a decent commitment to Brooklyn Nine-Nine that they would have to work around, and working around it would be a bit of a problem. That's true, yeah. Alana Huffman, I've only ever seen her in Smallville, I think. Well, she's been in quite a few sci-fi TV shows. She's in a few, few episodes of Supernatural. Probably don't remember. She was a demon Abaddon. Oh, yeah, that's right. And she had a supporting role in Stargate Universe. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. And didn't the, the first half of... Uh, TV series version of Painkiller Jane, which had Christiana Loken as a main character. So she, she, she has been in like a lot of, sort of sci-fi comic book type stuff, so it certainly wouldn't be anything new to her. And she tweeted about it just saying... Well, it was just a tweet of the putting her hand up emoji, wasn't it? Yeah, because uh, I think it was like in response to saying, like, hands up who wants to become Batwoman or something like that. Yeah. So, I guess. I can't remember how good she was in the other things I've seen her in, so I guess so. Wallace Day... Was on Krypton. She was really good on Krypton. Can she lead a TV series? Who knows? Can she meet the physical demands? Who knows? Possibly. She did some action stuff on Krypton, but yeah. she mostly held a gun. And also, in in the in a tweet um, expressing her interest, it was below a video of her sparring in a boxing ring. So there's that. I think she would possibly have the best chance, or among the best chance, of making the role her own, because. She won't be that well known, other than people that have seen Krypton, which, because it got cancelled, is pretty much no one. Exactly, because yeah, that's all just like 12 people by the end. I think, I think it, it dropped off even more. And it was only towards the end of the series that she really had any, any kind of action. And so that would have gone by even, even the people who only watched it in the beginning. They, they yeah. wouldn't have seen that side of her. Yeah. So she could be an option. I think that she'll be the most anonymous. She also has the same kind of build as Ruby Rose does. Yeah, which, which is a big help. And they, they do both have the same kind of androgynous beauty about them. Do you think whoever gets cast will have to just replicate the same tattoos and makeup every day? I was wondering that. Because <laughs> they're all just her tattoos, aren't they? That yeah. They just, yeah, we can't cover these up. Can't be bothered. It's too much work. It is a pretty distinct part of her look. And also one that actually fits the character quite well, which, which is probably why they, they didn't, didn't bother disguising them. Yeah. Oh, the other choice is Jade Taylor. I found it. She was on The Magicians, not The Librarian. Ah, right. I only watched the first season of that and couldn't be bothered with the rest of it. I haven't seen any of it, so I have no idea who she is or, or what she's like. But presumably she must be openly gay because that is all they're going to cast, really. A member of the LGBT community. So, I guess... Possibly. Well, that, that's someone they're looking for, or someone who's like expressed interest. She said she would like to do it because you know she's used to action sequences and the, and all that stuff. So she's used to fighting and she knows how to fight and all that stuff. So. Yeah, we'll see. She put up a video of rehearsal footage on her tweet. So I've no idea who she is. So she's as good a choice as any, so <laughs> as far as I'm concerned at this point. I'm not going to watch the, the magicians to find out. So we'll see. There's other things they could do sort of in-universe. I mean, I suppose they could just get Rachel Scarston to play Kate Kane and just say, oh yeah, they were identical twins all along. <laughs> and we're just never going to mention it again. Or, I mean, if you really wanted to, I guess you would just do the opening sequence of season two be Batwoman or stunt woman in the costume gets killed. Not actually kill the stunt woman, but make it seem like they're killed. And then that's Kate killed off. And then, like, Julia goes into the costume because she's done it before. I really don't see them doing that. No, no, they've already said they're going to recast, but they can change their minds, so they might decide someone else takes up the mantle rather than we're going to try and get people used to another version of 
cake cane. So that's another option, I suppose. I think it's a crappy situation, whatever way you look at it. I don't think the production team are looking forward to this. No, even after the casting part of it is, is done, then once season two actually airs, then it's going to be all anyone talks about. Yeah. Because they're not going to care about anything else. It's just going to be if this woman is a decent enough replacement and it would be better if River Rose had stayed. And is this going to kill a series? Is it going to survive this major upset? And they'll distract from everything else that, that they're trying to achieve for the season. Do you think they'll address it in any way? I think it will depend on if they decide to have like an in-universe explanation for the change, like maybe like a delayed crisis effect. Though they do think like it's a bit late to be kind of using that as an excuse for altering things. Yeah, or it could just be those cheesy sort of sitcom nods where they recast. It's like, oh hi Kate, have you had a haircut? <laughs> you look totally different. Something like that. One way that is addressed in a TV show I really liked was in the final season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The love interest of the main character series was written out in season two after after it was unsure if it would, if it would get renewed and the, and, the, and the actor took another job. So he was then written out, character moving away. But then the, the character comes back in, in the final season, played by somebody different. It was actually played by Sky Rostin, recently in Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Okay. But it's only Rebecca, like the main character, who actually notices that he looks different. Mm-hmm. And everyone else acts... As, as just, just the same person and she's talking nonsense but it works really well because the series has a hyper-reality aspect to it where it doesn't exist quite a world of normality and what takes place is filtered through Rebecca's perception yeah. so just because she sees something a certain way it doesn't mean it's actually accurate and I just thought it was a really interesting way of playing with it cool I'm not sure they'll do anything overt I think there'll probably be a couple of like winks to the audience especially since Tommy Elliott's wearing a face that isn't his and things like that, but I don't know. It's something you can get around when it's like a side character. It's a bit easier because they're not the focus, but when you're having to recast your lead one year in is rough, I think. I think that's a rough thing to have to deal with. Yeah, and it's it's a difficult thing to come back from. Good example being Spartacus for reasons I mentioned a lot when it was brought up on the the Flash podcast which would probably be boring to repeat again I mean the thing is it's not the first time it's happened sort of in this universe you've had side characters that have just been quietly recast here and there let's not forget we've had two Sarah Lances Oh, it's true, yeah. The, the first one was there so briefly, I'm not sure if anyone even noticed. Yeah, it's one of those things that when she was reintroduced, it's like, is that the same actress? And then you just forget about it. And it's, obviously it's not, but they just reshot those scenes using her later on. Yeah. And she was also Sarah Lance with an H. Oh, yeah. At first, which is quite funny when you think back to it. So, yeah, obviously, this is a pilot episode. We don't know if we're even going to get a series. And then when they get a series, we have no intention of bringing this person back. And then season two, they immediately do. But that's a different story completely. Uh, whereas this, it's, no, we're going to be continuing with this character on played by a different actor. Which I think will be a hard thing for people to adjust to. Because it's going to be one of those things where whenever you watch a scene with her in it, it's going to be hard to pay attention to what the scene is actually about. Because you'd be trying to gauge how is she doing. Was it a thing that, that, that happened far too many times in Game of Thrones. It wasn't wasn't frequent like like the like the, the central characters. Although so some of the some of the supporting and tertiary ones were uh, changed alarmingly frequently. One of which had several vocal complaints from Jana because she she was upset that the new guy wasn't as hot as the original one, <laughs> and would proclaim this every single time he appeared in a scene. So yeah, having comparisons to a new person is inevitable. Yeah, yeah, and especially in a, in a lead role, then end up taking focus off everything else. Yeah, by season three, if it gets one, it will be gone. 
people will have accepted her if it gets a season three and so on. But it's going to be tough waters ahead. I think the actual Marvel movies, when they recast some key roles, I say key roles, like the Hulk, for example, or Rhodey for the Iron Man movies. And I remember in Iron Man 2 when Rhodey farts walks in, Stark's like, Rhodey? And he's like, yeah, it's me, I'm here, deal with it. And then that's it, they just move on. (laughs) And then when you watch the Avengers, every scene that Bruce Banner's in, they either remind you that he's Bruce Banner or the Hulk. There's a piece of dialogue. It's not obvious. I mean, it's obvious in the sense that I noticed it, but it's not blatant. It's just there will be a piece of dialogue that just quietly reminds you this guy is supposed to be Bruce Banner, in case you weren't sure. (laughs) And it's quite well done. But again, he's not the focus in that film, or he's one of several focuses in that film. So that's different again. So I don't know. I just don't know how they're going to tackle this. It'll be interesting to see. For the first episode of season two, we very well watched, just <laughs> so people can watch it unfold. And then after that, we shall see. Yeah, it's it's going to be an odd one, but definitely an interesting one. What I find quite interesting is how many people are just jumping on the fact that they want to do it. Because if you look at, say, when Ant-Man lost Edgar Wright as a director, there were so many directors that were just, I'm not touching that. That was someone's passion. I'm not going anywhere near that. And whereas in this, it's like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm so glad she stepped down. Let me do it. <laughs> it's just a weird thing. You would think there'd be a lot of actors who would be like, yeah, she made that role her own. I don't know if I could measure up. So I really want to be somebody's replacement and have people constantly debate whether or not I'm good enough. Yeah. Apparently, they're quite happy with it. How very strange. Hmm. So that's that. We don't know how it's going to go. The choices are probably fine. We shall see. I reckon that casting news won't take long, though, because if they really want to get the show back on the air in January, it's got to happen fairly soon, I would think. Yes, and I think just leaving this whole situation unresolved, I think it it would um, end end up shaking people's faith in the series even more than it currently has been, and would result in even fewer people bothered to watch it, because they'll just assume that it's just going to go to hell, so they won't even try. Yeah. So... Aside from the hope we get a good replacement for Ruby Rose, what would you like to see in Season 2, or what do you expect to see in Season 2? I would like to see better interactions between Kate and Sophie, for reasons as we've previously mentioned. And I would like Alice to be less annoying, and just be more consistent in what she wants, and what it is she's actually planning and doing. And I'm... Kind of debating with myself whether or not I want to see Mary think about becoming a vigilante herself, because she's a character who original to the series and doesn't actually have any, any counterpart in the comics. But in her character, there are some some echoes of a character called Betty Kane, who, who is another of Kate's cousins, and becomes a vigilante named Flamebird, who in the same way that Batwoman is like a female version of Batman, Flamebird is like a female version of Nightwing. All right, okay. and. Uh, I'm just kind of trying to decide for myself whether or not that's something I want to see or whether I just prefer Mary to carry on as she is, being amazing and adorable. I'm not sure it suits her at this stage. Maybe much, much later, but not at the moment. Yeah, I think you're right. Anything else for season two? I'd like to see Luke become more confident and doing a lot more uh, amazing technical stuff because it's always fun. I'd be just in general more consistent exploration into interpersonal dynamics because that's been such a big focus of the show but it hasn't always rung true yeah some similar stuff to what i'd like to see i want the alice plot resolved one way or another i think it needs to be resolved 
somehow because it's kind of dragging on a bit and it seems like it's heading towards an end point because when Alice kills Mouse that seemed like she was pledging I'm going to join you soon but I've got to do stuff first so I wonder if she's planning a sort of murder-suicide pact but just the suicide part for her comes a lot later after she deals with I guess Batwoman slash Kate but I'd like to see it resolve one way or another whether she's redeemed or is deemed irredeemable and just dies as a result Either way, let's get rid of that and move on with something else. Because imagine we're in season five and it's still going on. Could you imagine? I'd rather not. Yeah. Why haven't we got rid of her yet? Come on, hurry up. Yeah. So let's hope for that. I want to see some other decent villains, whether that be Tommy Elliot. I guess I'd quite like to see Bruce Wayne come into it in his own way. A bit of a Batwoman, Batman team up thing would be quite cool, maybe. And let's get Oliver Queen back so they can, so the Green Arrow can meet Batman. That's not going to happen, but let's do it. Anyway, find some way. Even if it's just Diggle, the Green Arrow costume. Let's do that. What else would I like to see? Yeah, Luke getting a bit more to do. Mary continuing to be amazing. Sophie getting better plots to deal with. All that stuff. I'd like to see more consistently good action because, as I said, it's been kind of dull up until this point, so they really need to fix that, I think. Because, again, it's a show about a costume superhero, so we should see them doing more costume superhero stuff. That's really it. It's hard to sort of predict what, or hard to second-guess what might be coming up next, because this show is broadly quite episodic, more so than the other ones. Every episode seems to be a plot that's just told and contained and wrapped up, with threads that weave in and out, but... More so than the other one. I can't imagine you could just drop into a random episode of Supergirl this season and be expected to follow what's going on. But with Batwoman, you largely could, I think. More or less. Yeah, actually. If for no other reason than the the characters' tendencies to explain everything that they're feeling and how they feel about other characters. Yeah. So, season two might get a bit more arc-focused now that they're in a second season they can be confident in that, or... Well, they can be less confident because they don't know if this new actor will take. So maybe it'll be more episodic. We just don't know. We shall see. Yeah. So on that, what are your final thoughts? Were you a fan of season one? Do you want to see a season two? Are you looking forward to seeing more? Think it fits into the universe well, etc., etc. Well, overall, I did like the series, but wasn't hugely blown away by it. But despite that, I do want to see more of it. I'm certainly looking forward to season two. And... I just really hope that the potential that I think that the series has can be properly developed. Because I think the series really, really can become something great. It just isn't quite there yet. Yeah, I agree. I think it got so much better in the second half of the season once it had established itself a bit more. And there's a bit more to build on. So I'm hopeful for a season two. I liked the latter half, certainly, of season one a lot. And I don't envy them with the issues that they've now got to deal with in terms of getting an audience used to a new character, especially with the fanfare surrounding her introduction in Elseworlds as well. It's like, we're introducing Batwoman, we're going to do a TV show and it's going to be amazing. And it's like, this is who she is. And it's like, oh yeah, no, it's not. Uh, (laughs) Because it'll be interesting to see how this new actor bounces off Melissa Benoist as well. Because I know they were planning to do the Oliver Barry friendship is kind of replaced, in effect, by the Kate and Cara friendship. They were supposed to be that new superhero friendship kind of thing in the universe. And 
well, if the chemistry's not there, that won't happen. That was one of the things that I really loved about Crisis was Kate and Kara becoming close to his friends. Because I think that uh, most of the noise and Ruby Rose had a great on-screen dynamic. And it would be disappointing if that kind of developing friendship between the two characters isn't something that we can now see because of whoever they're getting in, not having that same kind of rapport with her. Yeah. And the crossover is supposed to be Batwoman and Superman and Lois, which probably won't happen now. We'll probably think of something else. I think, I think having to think of something else is pretty much number one on every creative to-do list right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because Superman and Lois crossing over with Batwoman was the something else that they were going to Yeah. Do. And then, uh, no, no, some, maybe they'll just go ahead with it. They'll be like, to hell with it. We're committed to this. We're going to keep doing it. If it ends up being the last season, so be it. Whatever. Let's just double down on this. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see yeah. how they decide to deal with things. Yeah, we shall see how it all goes. But, yeah, interesting times are ahead. It'll be back in January, maybe. We'll see. So I'm going to turn off the bat signal and let you go back to your hole in the ground, also known as a cave. And hibernate for six months sounds good actually sounds good to me actually yeah 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 i can think of worse ways to spend my time right now <laughs> but yeah thank you for being here and uh once again thank you for having me i acknowledge my existence no problem anytime and i imagine we'll be back same bat time well not definitely not the same bat time but definitely the same bat channel so that was our discussion of batwoman season one Thanks to YouTuber Neil Stenson for the supplied music. If you enjoyed what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or any major podcasting app. iTunes users, please do take the time to rate us using the stars, and write something if you're so inclined. If you want to talk Batwoman, the Arrowverse, or anything else, then you can find us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave comments on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. Tune in next time, some bat time, same bat channel.